turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. I know a place where we can go to lay the troubles down in your soul. This is Crosswalk, Colorado Springs. Now, your host, Eric Cartier, Senior Pastor of Rocky Mountain Calvary Church. Like Welcome to Crosswalk, Colorado Springs. This is Pastor Eric Cartier from Rocky Mountain Calvary. Hope that you're doing well on this Tuesday afternoon. We're live in studio today, and I'm excited about my guest. His name's Steve Ryder, and he is the founder of Never Alone Project. So, Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks, Eric. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be on. Thank you. So, How's your day going? It's going all right. Yeah, nice, beautiful, cooler than what it's been. So yeah. I've been doing a little bit of work around the house, some emails, and so... I've enjoyed that it's a little cooler today. It seems like the last couple of weeks have been pretty hot. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty active. I love hiking, being outside, and so this cooler weather is much nicer when I get up in the mountains. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for coming and sharing about uh, you. your nonprofit. Could you just share with us what a Never Alone is is all about? Yeah. So the Never Alone project was started in the summer of 2020, and the goal is ultimately to have federal legislation that protects a patient's right to at least one screened loved one per day with no time limits. Mm-hmm. And this goes to my story. My, yeah. my late wife dealt with health issues nearly our entire marriage, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and then in 2014, she was diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension. Mm-hmm. And the doctor, the head of pulmonology up at University of Colorado Hospital, he came to me and he said, Steve, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but there's a real possibility your wife isn't going to be around to see your youngest graduate high school. Mm-hmm. For listeners that don't know what pulmonary hypertension is, it's basically a lung disease where your lungs aren't absorbing the kind of blood that the heart's trying to push in to get it oxygenated. So that back pressure causes the right side of that heart to enlarge and eventually fail congestively. There's no cure. The, the closest thing we have to a cure right now is a lung transplant, which okay. is fraught with all kinds of medical complications. And so when COVID happened, we knew it could be something very serious because she had two comorbidities. She had an autoimmune issue and she had a lung disease. So we locked down hard. But right at the very beginning in March of 2020, she thought she had COVID. A friend of hers started exhibiting the same symptoms. And so her doctor started seeing her virtually. And Anyone that with any common sense knows you can't diagnose a lung infection, a standard lung infection, bronchitis, that's developing into pneumonia or sepsis over virtual visits. And so over those seven weeks, she was up and down. And finally, on April 29th, she woke up at three in the morning, not even able to keep a sip of Gatorade down. She was throwing up. And after about two hours of that, we realized she needed to go to the hospital. And so we called an ambulance. They took her to Memorial and ultimately up to University of Colorado Hospital where she was checked in. And at this point, hospitals hadn't started letting visitors in, but because we knew the doctors, because we knew a lot of her nurses, we had great relationships. I thought, okay, I'm going to get a COVID test. I was negative. She was negative again. Okay. And so I thought, okay, I'm negative. She's negative. I'll get an exception. And the answer was always no. No matter how high up the, the chain of command I went, it was always no. And so at that point, I, 
when she went into the hospital, I saw how weak she was. And when she went in in 2014 with that enlarged heart that was failing congestively, when she was diagnosed with the pulmonary hypertension, I saw, Eric, I saw the power of having a loved one there to hold her hand, hmm. to rub her feet, to rub her shoulders, to speak words of life over her, cast a vision. Hmm. Because when she went in in 2014, the doctors called it an end-of-life situation. They, they were basically preparing me. She may not make it home. It's that bad. But over the course of the three-plus weeks that she was there in the hospital, the doctors were blown away at her recovery because I would be in there 24 seven. I'd be in there two or three days. Her mom would be in there one or two. And we do this rotation and we bring the boys up and we'd pray over her, speak words of life, cast yeah. vision for our future. And so I thought, okay, when she went in in 2020, I thought, okay, I'll get an exception. The answer was always no. And I saw how weak she was. I mean, that, that first night, the next morning, we had a FaceTime call and I had never seen her that week before. Mm. And she told me, she said, Steve, I thought I was going to genuinely choke to death on my own phlegm. That's how bad the pneumonia was. So I kept telling, Hey, can, any way we can work, I'll, I'll abide by whatever rules you want to institute because I fully understand the need to protect doctors, nurses, staff, and those other patients because my wife was one of those other patients. Right. Yeah. And so I was willing to abide by whatever rules. Yeah. I'm quarantined to her room and I can only leave if I'm escorted. Cool. I'm, if I, I have to buy a full suit out of pocket, buy a full suit, I was willing to do it. I was willing to abide by whatever. And the answer was always no. And so I started to get some media attention across the state. And uh, sadly, on her 21st day that she was there in the hospital, she threw a blood clot and uh, went, into, went into cardiac arrest hmm. and died alone. Wow. Did you ever get to see her in those 21 days? Not until she was dead. Wow. Man. So, I mean, there was one point at which the stress of her being in, in the hospital on Mother's Day weekend, her health took a dip about midway through that that stay. Um, so the I was starting to get media attention across the state. My mom was flying in from Wisconsin to go help out with the boys and even a little bit of national media attention. And so my mom was coming out and we, because we were driving right by university of Colorado hospital on the way to DIA, I thought, what's the least harmful thing that I can do? Do I just drive by and drive back without any acknowledgement that I can see the hospital right there from two twenty-five? It's brutal. Or do I take the boys, go head up a little early, grab some euros from our favorite Euro place, sit outside the hospital, FaceTime over dinner, and then wave to her from the van. And I thought that would encourage her. At the end of that call, she got super emotional. Whenever she got emotional, her health would dip. Hmm. I got a call about two in the morning. Your wife is bleeding in one of her lungs. We're moving her to the ICU. Don't come up. Hmm. I got a call a couple hours later. We think we've isolated it. It's a couple small arteries. We're cauterizing them. Don't come up. So on Mother's Day. My wife never got depressed, but she was depressed on Mother's Day. Mm. I mean, legitimately, she was really down. And I dipped into my bag of tricks of almost 20 years with her to of all the goofy stuff that I would do to get her to smile yeah. and cracking jokes. Nothing worked. And our conversation turned to, what if this is the one you don't come home from? Mm. 
FaceTime is not the place to have those kinds of conversations, those emotional conversations. You as a pastor, you know this. Those are the conversations that deserve to be had in person. And so because she had been on blood thinners all those years, they had to give her coagulant to stop the bleeding. And that presented a blood clot risk. And they were watching her like crazy. But the day before she was set to come home, I got a call. We, we, had, a, we had a call about four in the afternoon talking about she was set to come home on the 20th, 21st, or 22nd. And so this was the 19th, May 19th, 2020. And our conversation was, okay, what do you want for takeout meals? We're going to, what do you want for meals that we'll make here at the house? We want to shower you with love. We'll have friends come over, but not overwhelm you. And we're kind of starting to plan those kinds of details. And 30 minutes later, I got a call from the hospital. And my first thought was, sweet, I'm picking her up tomorrow morning, first thing. Or maybe I'm picking her up tonight. Maybe they're releasing her tonight. And when I picked up the phone, they said, your wife's gone into cardiac arrest. Mm. Get up here now. 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 An hour and a half it takes for me, where I live in Falcon, to get up to the hospital. And obviously, I didn't make it. I called when I was um, jumping on I-25 up um, up by uh, Interquest. And they said they were still doing cardiac, they were still doing CPR. And I knew at that point she wasn't coming home. Hmm. Wow, Steve. That's, I'm really sorry. That's a really tough, yeah. It's a, and any acknowledgement from the hospital of, hey, I'm sorry. No. no nothing. No, no. And at, after she had had the, uh, the bleeding in her lungs, uh, the the head of infectious disease, Dr. Michelle Barron, had inserted herself into Elizabeth's case, particularly after I started to get the state media attention. I feel like she was coming as the good cop. See, we got the best in the hospital working on your wife, trying to appease me. And so uh, I, I logged into my wife's computer and got the phone number and texted Dr. Michelle Barron and asked for an exception. Hmm. And I got up. One paragraph, lawyer ease that said, sorry, we're not making any exceptions. Uh, got Steve Ryder with me today on Crosswalk Colorado Springs. You're definitely going to come back after the break on 100.7, The Word. This is Crosswalk Colorado Springs on 100.7, The Word. When your week feels like a Welcome back to Crosswalk Colorado Springs. Thanks so much uh, for listening. A very interesting guest today, Steve Ryder, and heartbreaking story of uh, your wife passing away April 2020, you and your boys not being able to go and see her. You know, this is a hard question, but how did that affect you not being able to see your wife before she passed? And, and also, how did that affect uh, your boys? Yeah. Um, so, I, I guess in a way I'm fortunate in that Holy Spirit planted something in me really early in my marriage that this could be my journey. So mm. Elizabeth was diagnosed not too long after we were married with uh, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And um, the day that she was diagnosed with that, we found out she was pregnant with our oldest, Matthew. And the doctor, the rheumatologist here in town, he recommended an abortion. He said, mm. there needs to be an abortion because this this pregnancy is going to threaten your life. You have this anti-cardiophospholipid antibody, then your pregnancy is going to be fraught with all kinds of complications. And sure enough, that's the way it played out. Pregnancy-induced hypertension. Her blood pressure was through the roof. We had numerous 
visits down to Memorial Hospital mm. to try and get her blood pressure stabilized. And um, uh, about nine weeks early, they had to do an emergency C-section because her placenta was starting to abrupt and she was starting to show signs of preeclampsia. And so when she, when they pulled Matthew out, I went with Matthew to the NICU and the doctor came to me afterwards and he was like, Steve, it got really hairy in there. She lost a lot of blood, but she's stable now. Everything's good. And when he said it got really hairy in there, um, something inside of me just was, was just pricked that, mm. okay, I, I don't think I'm going to get to 60 years with my wife. I don't mm. think I'm going to get to 50, maybe get to 40. I really hope I can get to 30. We didn't even make it to 20. And so every time I worked for Dr. Dobson for 15 years, I was his chief audio engineer at Focus on the Family. And then I left with him to go help start Family Talk. And so whenever we would cover losing a spouse, whenever we would cover grief on the broadcast, something inside my spirit would just say, pay attention, pay attention. Hmm. And I would take that and I would, you know, okay, I'd file it away for the, possibly for the future. Hmm. And so, um, so yeah, two days after she had passed, I had a call with a buddy of mine who lost his wife 10 years earlier. And we talked about some various things. And at the end of the call, he was like, do whatever you can to get your kids into grief counseling. And mm. if there's something other than what we're talking about here with the Neverloan Project that listeners can file away in their own brains for the future, you are undoubtedly going to know someone that's going to lose a spouse and they're going to have kids at home. My buddy lost his spouse. He married a widow. They both lost spouses. They're facilitating grief groups in Southern Oregon. And he said, Steve, we see a vast difference between the kids that get it and the kids that don't. Mm. Kids that don't. Alcohol, drugs, promiscuous, grades, anger issues, acting out. You name it, they're going through it. And he said the kids that do get grief counseling, it's not that they don't have issues. But he said, bro, it's night and day different. He said, I wish I could go back and I could get my 16-year-old when he lost his wife from pancreatic cancer. I wish I could have got my 16-year-old to go through grief counseling. I wish I would have done it for my adult kids because he said, I, I see so much benefit in doing that. And so mm -hmm. if any listeners out there, you know someone that's has a spouse that's terminally ill and they have kids at home, rally around them. Do whatever you can to get those kids into grief counseling because my boys, I tell them, I tell family and friends all the time when they ask how the boys are doing, they're doing better than me. Mm. They really are. They're thriving with mm. life and uh, really doing mm. well. And so, and I try and watch to see around Elizabeth's birthday. Sometimes I can see, yeah. And I'll pre, I'll, I'll, I'll hey, do you want, do you want to go see Evie? Evelyn Bodet's our grief counselor. She's up in Monument. She's yeah. a rock star, specializes mm. in grief counseling. And uh, mm. yeah, the boys well, are doing really good. That's amazing that the Holy Spirit had prompted you all those years back. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Wow. Let's talk a little bit more about Never Alone Project. The website's neveraloneproject.org. You were sharing with me on the break, there's no laws giving patients the right to visitors and, and families being able to visit that. That's shocking uh, to me. So the, the hospitals really legally have the the ability to say, no, you can't have a visitor. So in the case of COVID, um, it really came down to two kind of big issues. It was the individual hospitals and what they wanted to do in terms of how widespread COVID, how many COVID beds they had. Like in May, early May of 2020, I think it was like the first, second or third, I saw a big press release in the Denver Post that hospitals 
all across the state were starting to let visitors in. So from mid-March, when everything broke until the end of April, very first couple days of May, there were no visitors whatsoever. Then they started to let visitors in. And it came down to individual hospitals deciding what they wanted to do for visitation. But then there was a second angle to this that really kind of handcuffed hospitals across the nation. The Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services and the CDC came out with guidelines for hospitals. And those guidelines were really fuzzy. And because hospitals didn't want to run afoul of the CMS guidelines and risk their Medicaid and Medicare funding, their accreditation status, they didn't want to risk that. So they often would lock down even harder than what these fuzzy guidelines kind of said. Hmm. And so it, it came down to bureaucracy at the macro level in, in D.C., and then it also came down to individual hospitals and deciding what they really wanted to do. And most hospitals were afraid of liability. They were afraid of COVID spreading like wildfire amongst the staff. And I get that. I totally get that. I understand the need to protect doctors, nurses, staff, and other patients because my wife was one of those other patients. But we have to balance mm-hmm. protecting those the staff and those patients while giving the individual what they need. Because if we're forcing people to try and recover alone, study after study, after study, after study shows that having a loved one there aids in the healing process. Yeah. And it doesn't take just studies. I mean, you as a pastor have seen this throughout yeah. your career as a pastor yeah. and as a patient, because yeah. you were in the hospital with during COVID as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. I have a little bit of my own story with this, but I got diagnosed with type one diabetes in April of 2020 and went into the hospital and my wife and kids couldn't, you know, come visit and and thankfully getting insulin, I got better and got home and got released. But, uh, and God was faithful to meet me in the hospital, but those were lonely days, uh, for me and and lonely days for my, my family and a a weird feeling to get dropped off by your spouse at the ER and she can't go in. Yeah. Know? Well, you, you were telling me during the break that right. it was, it was pretty serious. I mean, your doctor was right. like, this is really, really serious. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm sure there were unanswered questions of what if this thing does turn and was that the last time I was going to say goodbye to my wife? What if, what if, what if? Right. Yeah. I got the phone call from my doctor where he's like, this is a life and death emergency. Get to the ER as fast as you can, you know? And, and so there was, a ton swirling around in my head. And, and so I've got a heart for the never alone project from the perspective of a pastor. You know, I, I know how meaningful those visits are from family and from your pastor. Uh, it, it makes a huge difference in, <clears throat> excuse me, in their lives. And then also from being on the, the patient side of not being able to see my wife and kids during, during that time. So we're getting close to the break, so we'll catch this after the break. But after the break, let's talk about the next steps. You know, what's going on with legislation? How can people get behind this? Because I think that this hits a chord with a lot of people. There's probably a lot of stories out there of people not being able to see their loved ones. So Steve Ryder is with me with neveraloneproject.org, sharing his story. And also you can go to the website and check it out, trying to get legislation to give 
uh, families the right to see their loved ones in uh, the hospital. Just want to remind you that Crosswalk Colorado Springs is Monday through Friday. Uh, so make sure to join us from uh, 5 to 6. You can also find our podcast, Crosswalk Colorado Springs, anywhere that you enjoy uh, your podcast. So Steve Ryder is with me, neveralonproject.org. And we're talking about the importance of having legislation in place where family members uh, can visit their loved ones in the hospital. So, so important. You'll want to stay with us and come back on 100.7 The Word. Crosswalk Colorado Springs on 100.7 The Word. Welcome back to Crosswalk Colorado Springs. Thanks so much uh, for joining me. I'm Steve Ryder with me with NeverAloneProject.org. Definitely go check out his uh, website. Uh, his wife passed away April 2020, and he and his sons were not able to see his wife in the hospital. So it's really his heart and aim for there to be legislation uh, that would protect the right of patients to see see families. And so, Steve, how is that going with, with trying to get laws passed, you know, I'm sure here in Colorado, but also yeah. throughout the country that w- would give patients the right to have families come and visit. Right now it's a state by state issue and it's a matter of if we can get legislation through in that state. So in uh, June of 2020, I had a, actually I think it was May, I think it was May, just a couple of weeks after Elizabeth died or a week after I met with Tim Geithner, my state representative, who's now no longer in, in Denver as, as a state representative. But Tim met with me and he was like, I want to do something. And it was the very end of the session in 2020. And thankfully, the Speaker of the House was like, yes, let's try and do something. And so we were working with the Hospital Association to try and craft legislation. And they stabbed us in the back right before it went to committee. They did a strike through that made it a requirement that they let a visitor in per day that a suggestion that hospitals review their visitation policies and Tim came to me afterwards and he was like, do we still try and do this? And I was like, yes, any mm-hmm. press is, even if it's just a signaling bill, it'll, it'll hopefully capture some, the Denver post and the Gazette and other big papers and news outlets around the state. Yeah. We saw a little bit of that. And, uh, so we tried again in 2021 and the hospital association killed it in committee. They owned all the Democrats and every Democrat voted against it. And so we tried again in 2022 in the House. And thankfully, thankfully, Senator Jerry Sonnenberg from Sterling took our 2021 legislation and introduced it in the Senate. So we had crafted new legislation in the House and we did new and he took the recycled legislation and tweaked it a little bit. And so we had two pieces of legislation last year that were going through the House and the Senate. House went directly to the uh, um, the health and insurance committee and it was killed by the Democrats again. And in the Senate, I didn't have any hopes for it at all either because it was sent by the Democrats to the kill committee. But because the margin is much less in the Mm -hmm. Senate, all we needed was one Senator to say yes, and it would move to the Senate floor or move to the house and then to the ultimately to the floor. And uh, amazingly enough, Senator Julie Gonzalez all the testimony that that Jerry, Senator Sonnenberg, and Tim and I and others had got had really got Julie's Julie's heart, and mm. she said from from the committee, she was like, "I've 
my brother was in the hospital during COVID and we would take over a floor and it was crushing for us to not be in the hospital. And so I got to think about this. And so Senator Sonnenberg and Senator Gonzalez went back and forth and they tweaked the legislation a bit to try and help iron some stuff out to make it more palatable. And then it passed that committee and amazing (laughs) as retribution, Julie was removed as the chair of the kill committee. So that's Colorado politics. So it goes to the house kill committee. Amazingly, we squeak through with a couple more concessions in order to get it passed and it passed on the floor, passed on the Senate governor signed it. And even governor Polis during the signing, he told me, Steve, more needs to be done. Too many concessions were made. More needs to be done. I wanted to say to him, well, it's your party that's killed it every step of the way. Right. I've, I've only had one Republican at all in any of these vote against it. And so, uh, but as, as weak and as watered down as the legislation is, it's proved amazingly effective because every single person that has reached out to us and said, I'm locked out ever since it, ever since it was passed, we give them Elizabeth's law and boom, they're in within an hour They're in within an hour. And so the hospitals haven't, haven't defaulted to any of their outs that they have in the legislation. They've just let people in. And so, uh. So go over that with me again. What's the new legislation <laughs> say? It sounds like you'd like it to be stronger, but yes. after it kind of got watered down, what's the current law? So mm-hmm. it's it's uh, Elizabeth's no patient left alone legislation okay. law. And uh, basically it allows at least one screened loved one per day with no time limits. Okay. And so it, it, it gets what what we want done. Now there are some outs for the hospital, like they don't have to provide PPE and they can require a level of PPE that people can't buy at CVS or Walgreens. What, what's PPE? Uh, personal protective equipment. So okay. masks, they can require a full suit. Okay. And you can't go to Walgreens or CVS and get a full suit. Yeah. And so they can say, oh, we're saving all this PPE, all these suits for our doctors and nurses. And so you can't get in and they have other outs like that. But fortunately it's, it's let people in now, unfortunately with the legislation, no one knows about it. Okay. Governor Polis signed it over by Fort Morgan. Hmm. And the only paper that showed up was the Fort Morgan paper. That was it. So Denver post never covered it. The Denver Gazette, the cover Springs Hmm. Gazette, Fort Hmm. Collins, no paper, no TV cameras were there. And so no one knows about this legislation. And, mm. and, and really, this, this is kind of where even at the state level in states where we have good legislation like Arkansas, I had a conversation with Representative Julie Mayberry in Arkansas. And Arkansas is probably the model legislation as close to as close to perfect as there is. I had a conversation with Julie last year and, and she was like, Steve, we still have a problem. There's two problems, really. No one knows about the legislation and there's no punishment for the hospitals. Hmm. So hospitals are still locking people out, at least were last year in Arkansas, just daring people to, oh yeah, you've, you've, you've got these protections because there was no punishment for the hospitals because no one knows about it and there's no punishment. Hospitals are just doing what they want to do Hmm. and just daring people. And often people are afraid to report it to the state in Arkansas because they're afraid of retribution in terms of quality of care. Right. And we saw that with the legislation, the testimony that we did in the Senate, we had a doctor who testified as a clinician treating COVID patients. And then he got COVID and amazingly 
his wife wasn't allowed to be with him. I always thought going into this that medical professionals take care of their own and they'll, they'll, they'll sneak they'll family members in and, and just try and make it hush hush. And that was not the case ter- from most of what I've heard and doctors that I've talked to that have been in the hospital with COVID. And so he talked about it as a clinician and as a patient. And he was weeping about the loneliness of being in the hospital and not sure if he's going to talk to his wife again and see his kids one last time. That hospital, after that testimony, cut his hours and cut his patients as retribution for testifying in terms of what he felt as an individual. Wow. And so we know, we've seen it, this kind of vindictive nature on not all, but many administrators and they don't want this. And like I said, like I've said in both segments prior, I understand the need to protect doctors, nurses, staff, and other patients, because the last thing in the world we want is, is the virus du jour to go rampant amongst the staff. And then there's a staffing shortage in addition to an overflow of patients. We don't want that, but we have to balance that need to protect doctors, nurses, staff while giving the individual what they need, because if we're forcing people to recover alone, we're forcing them into solitary confinement of sorts. Right. We lost our humanity. Yeah. And all I've asked is just to balance that need. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really does touch on the dignity of human life. You yeah. know, like when you're not allowing people to have visitors, yeah, there's these health concerns, but there's the dignity of human life. And and that's where it seems like the hospitals have lost touch. Like you don't get those moments back as as you know. And and it's it's brutal. Yeah. One of the things that you shared that I really want to commend is even though the law isn't as robust as we would like, it it's you took a stand and there's a change that happened. And I think a lot of times we're seeing things in culture that stir us, but we, we don't take a stand. And your testimony is that one one man making a stand does make a difference. So Thank you. yeah. We've got Steve Ryder with us from Never Alone Project. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Crosswalk, Colorado Springs on 100.7, The Word. Welcome back to Crosswalk, Colorado Springs. This is Pastor Eric Cartier from Rocky Mountain Calvary. I have Steve Ryder with me with NeverAloneProject.org. And his heart is to really see the rights of patients honored to where they can have family uh, come and visit. If this cause resonates with you, I'm sure we have some listeners that are like, man, I I went through some really difficult and horrific experiences uh, during COVID. You can go to his website, neveraloneproject.org, and you can donate and see how you can uh, get involved. Uh, One of the things I was curious about, uh, Steve, was just, you know, I'm sure you've heard through from a lot of people during this process that have had a very tough experience where they're locked out. They can't go visit a loved one in the hospital. Uh, do you mind sharing just what you've heard? And <laughs> I've, I've heard way too many stories, yeah. way too many stories. Um, the, the one that really shocks me probably the most, young couple in Ohio, she's 26 weeks pregnant. She goes full on eclampsic. Her whole body is shutting down. Hmm. They do an emergency C-section, pull this micro preemie baby boy out, take him to the NICU, and they go to the dad and they say, okay, they give the wife a 10% chance to live and they go to the husband and they say, you get a choice. You can either go with your wife 
or you can go with your son. You can't go between the two for the next month. What do you want to do? And he's like, okay, I'm going to go with my micro preemie baby boy because I fully understand the importance and my my father-in-law can stay with my wife. That way she's getting some attention. Can I talk to my wife one last time? No. Hmm. Can I talk to her through the glass in the ICU? No. Can I pass her a note? And the answer was still no. Hmm. There, the, 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 some of these res- rules are just ridiculous. They're barbaric. I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've got a buddy of mine in the Dallas Fort Worth area. He's a fellow pastor and his parents took him both to the hospital. Both of them had COVID. Both of them needed to be hospitalized. And this is 2021. So this is a year and a half, probably into this This is late 21, very early 22. Cause they were in the hospital, December, January. And both of them are hospitalized. Both of them have COVID. One is not doing as well as the other, but they both need to be hospitalized. And Eric, they were moved to separate rooms. Hmm. Same freaking disease. Yeah. Why not at the very least, other than greed as well, I can think of as why they would separate this couple because they wanted to build the insurance for two separate rooms. But there's no medical reason to separate a husband and wife couple when they can both encourage each other. When one's feeling better, yeah, they can encourage the other one yeah. and give them that love and attention. And I've heard that over and over in in this time of couple going into the hospital at the same time and they're moved to separate rooms. It is the most ridiculous thing. One of them, I was on a call um, I'm working with another organization called Former Feds, and they they have a COVID humanity betrayal project where they're uh, they're they're documenting all of these cases of people being forced into ventilators and forced to take remdesivir and forced into the COVID quote unquote protocol that was a standard cookie cutter protocol. And on one of these calls, it was a same sex couple, a lesbian couple, I believe, in Tennessee, and. They were in the room right next to each other. It wasn't until one of them left and then she got to see her wife for five minutes and it was the room right next to her. It, we, we need to gain our humanity back in this process and understand that people need people. We're a social species. Right. Yeah. How about, can you help equip listeners here in Southern Colorado? Yeah. You know, where some of this stuff may take place in the future or sometimes still going on. If they come up against this where a hospital saying, hey, you can't see your family member, you know, what rights do they have under this new law that's been passed? And- yeah. So if you go to the neveralonproject.org site, you'll see bills and studies. You'll see a page legislation and studies. And on there, you can click on Colorado. You take that legislation and you take it to the hospital. Should you have a loved one there? And you say, look, I've got the right to visit my loved one. And then if they happen to use any of those outs, please let us know at Never Alone because the hospitals do have some outs to be able to get out of visitation. But like I said in an earlier segment, so far it's proven effective. Everyone's been let in. Hmm. But we're starting to see right now a ramp up with hospitals around the nation that are starting to reinstitute mask mandates. 
And with those mask mandates, we'll, we may see some restrictions in terms of visitors. And for listeners that may be thinking, yeah, we're three and a half years out almost from COVID. There's no way they can be doing any kind of restriction. My parents in the very town that I was born in, in March of this year, my dad went to the hospital with COVID, was admitted. Both my parents vaccinated. So I don't know where listeners stand on the whole vaccination. Obviously, it's going to span the gamut. Both my parents are vaccinated. And all they wanted to give my mom for visitation in March of 2023, three years into this, was a daily 10-minute visit. That's all. I called the hospital and I lost it. I was like, you guys are not going to do this trauma to my family again. No way. Give my mom an exception. Sorry, it's corporate policy. Work my way up. Sorry, it's corporate policy. Work my way up. Sorry, it's corporate policy. Finally, went to corporate and corporate saw that I've been on Candace Owens. I've been on the Babylon Bee. I've been on some major media platforms talking about this. Okay, we'll give your mom an exception. How much time do you want? The whole freaking day. Yeah. I want her to be able to come and go as needed because we're three years into this. So chances are... I. I, I in the summer of 2020, Eric, I, after my Babylon B appearance, I get a call from a pathologist at the University of South Florida Hospital, and she told me, she said, Steve, we need this kind of legislation that you're talking about because the precedent has been set. Visitation has seen a, a an evolution over time right. where we had hard visiting hours and visiting was pretty restricted in the sixties and seventies and the eighties things started to kind of loosen up and they understood the, the value of having a loved one there. And then every hospital stay that Elizabeth had prior to 2020, I was able to stay there in that room. Yeah. I'd be able to sleep there. So that way up in the middle of the night, if I needed to help get her up to help reduce the burden on the nurses. And so there's been an evolution in terms of visitation over the years, and we've locked right back down to, in many cases, the way it was back in the 80s and 70s and 60s. And we need to go back to what we had in 2018, 2019. We need to be able to let people stay overnight. We need to let the loved ones there help take the burden off of those nurses and the staff we need those loved ones to be able to advocate for their loved ones, often when they are too weak to advocate for themselves. Right. We need them as a second set of ears or a third set of ears, if there's two in there, understanding their loved one's health history and be able to relay that to the doctors and nurses we need them to be able to watch when those nurses aren't there in the room for when things turn just a little bit. Eric, the last, <laughs> the last week of my wife's life, she complained of lower back pain. Hmm. And I kept telling her, babe, as soon as I get in there, I'm going to rub your lower back. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bring the ice pack. I'll yeah. bring the heat pack. I'll bring the massage gun. I'm going to take care of you. Hmm. Eric. The autopsy showed it was undiagnosed kidney stones. Hmm. Had I been there in that room, I would have been able to say, hey, I'm rubbing her back. It's not getting any better. I'm rubbing her IT bands and her glutes. I'm taking care of the whole musculature around her lower back. What could this be? Yeah. 
and the kidney stones may have been addressed. Yeah. Yeah. This is why we need loved ones there in the hospital. Yeah, for sure. Well, Steve, thanks so much for coming in. I encourage listeners to go to uh, neveralonproject.org. Get involved, know your rights. And Steve, thanks again for coming. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. I could sing these songs as I often do. 100.7, The Word.